Welcome to Mammograms and Me from metro.co.uk. This is a new podcast series all about my campaign to find the million missing mammograms and the thousands of women walking around with undiagnosed breast cancer. Hosted by me, Dawn Butler, I was first elected in 2005 as the MP for Brent and I launched the hashtag Find the Million campaign with metro.co.uk in 2022 because after my own diagnosis, I was shocked to find out that there was between 8,000 and 10,000 women walking around with breast cancer and they just didn't know it. Each week, I'll be speaking to experts doctors and people with a deep understanding of breast cancer and some people who are still on their journey. I'll be discussing their experiences, the inside story and what we can all look out for. And I'm really pleased that I've got the amazing TikTok doc, Dr. Nigat, with me today. Doctor and author... Oh, God. <laughs> that still hasn't sunk in. Hello. Today. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's honestly a real honour to see you. And you're looking so well. You uh, look amazing. Thank you. And you look beautiful as always. I try. I try. <laughs> I have to when I'm TikToking. <laughs> TikTok doc. Do you like that? TikTok doc. I do, because I think that um, mainstream media doesn't always capture the information and people are looking at health information and getting their advice from social media. And we can't discount the fact that that's becoming a bigger part of our everyday lives. And there are no age barriers. There are no barriers really for any anybody, uh, race, class, ethnicity. The only barrier I would say is probably if you don't have access to social media. But uh, the accessibility and the ease of being able to empower someone is huge. And if I can do that on, say, TikTok, then I'm very proud of that. And you do re- you cover really important issues, especially that women go through. And like your book, The Knowledge, um, your guide to female health from menstruation to menopause. Notice that a lot of problems that women have starts with men, right? Um, but, <laughs> I'm making but, no comments. But, um, and you've also got a section in there on breast cancer. Tell me how important it is for you to get the message out there in sort of bite-sized chunks so that women and young women of all ages take it on board. I think you sort of hit the nail on the head when you said bite-sized chunks. Women are busy. They're mothers, they're daughters. Um, they've got elderly relatives that they might be looking after. They are career women now. Um, and even when they're home, there's always something that they're looking after. And I always find women never put themselves first. And I'm the same. I'm a mother to three boys. Um, my youngest is still five. Um, and everything revolves around the household and then my work. And then actually at the end of that mainstream of work, I will say, OK, now I need to focus on myself. So the way that women access information is in that bite-sized chunks. Being on social media, say whether that's Reels or Instagram or YouTube, um, then I can make sure that the information is in two to three minutes whilst you're doing something else. Hence why I think the medium podcast is fabulous because I would probably be ironing clothes. <laughs> and then listening in <laughs> And then background. listening in or doing some chores around the house and listening in. Because what happens is, is that uh, as a woman, we're multitaskers. 
and for women to have access about all the um, biological changes that they'll go through because every woman is on a journey whether she starts uh, as a young girl just starting her periods to the next thing is that she's thinking of actually coming off contraceptives and planning a family um, and then maybe breastfeeding and then postpartum care and then when she's older into the perimenopausal years and then throughout all, all of that our boobs our breasts are changing and then they're changing they're having uh, pain or problems or sensitivity to them and then how can you uh, empower that woman to go right pick up the signs early mm-hmm. understand what's happening to your biological change and then I'm hoping that my book was able to give advice along the way because there's so many you're a Muslim woman mm-hmm. you wear a hijab there's so many taboos isn't there so when we appeared on Good Morning Britain together and I was talking about my breast cancer journey and you were talking about the women that come into your surgery and then in the end you demonstrated how to examine your boob with your clothes on. You had your clothes on. We had a lot of people respond to that afterwards. I mean, some people were like, it was amazing to have women of colour talking about breast cancer on TV because that's often not the case. And so it was nice that we were doing it in such an open way. But then there were also people who were just like, oh my God, you're a Muslim woman and you were Touching your boobs through yeah, your clothes. Yeah, you're showing off your breasts, yeah. And so what are the taboos and how do we break them down? I think it comes with that unabashful, unapologetic saying, here I am. Mm. I'm going to take up space on a screen and show you without shame that this is how you do a breast exam. Because for me, doing that... Um, I did think about it before I, I, I did it. And I thought that actually if one woman who wears a hijab, who sees someone who looks like her, mm-hmm. because if you can see it, you can believe it will happen to you. And unfortunately, what happens is so much the mainstream uh, advertising or propaganda, as I would say, uh, or uh, messaging is always tailored to a white audience. Mm-hmm. So I've never seen a hijab woman on a breast can- cancer campaign, even now, and it's 2023. And I'm now starting to see black women, which is incredible. But that's still rare, actually, if you think about it. In our, we go about our life in our 20s and 30s thinking we're bomb-proof. Mm-hmm. Nothing will ever happen Don't to us. Just. <laughs> and when And then when you've got messaging around you saying that this doesn't, this is, the, you're not represented in this, you actually think that it doesn't happen to you either. And I I totally have that, you know, see it and you can be it. And if you have that representation, um, that adds so much more value. So for me to do that on ITV, I was saying, look, I need women to understand that this can happen at any age. And we know breast cancer isn't limited just to older women. But I unfortunately pick up breast cancer in my patients in my NHS clinic in younger women as well. It um, is actually getting younger, isn't it? And it's the biggest killer of young women, breast cancer. Uh, 25 and almost, do we know why that is so let's look at just the uh, what happens with our breast tissue um we know that one in seven women will get breast cancer mm. that's a high statistic mm. by the very nature that we have boobs so when we start our periods estrogen starts working around our body mm. when you end up getting changes in those hormones because you're ovulating uh in your estrogen and progesterone levels you end up getting sort of that slight tenderness within the the breast cells Mm. tissue and the cells are changing Mm. where you get change you get mistakes where you get mistakes you and I will say ah that's breast cancer Mm. but that change is happening all the way through our cycles we're having a cycle every month Mm. 
mm-hmm. up until what the age of 45. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, mistakes do happen and cells can change. And when that mistake happens, it multiplies. Mm-hmm. And we do know that there's lots of other factors involved. Um, we are getting fatter as a nation, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Obesity has a factor to play. Smoking has a factor to play. Lack of um uh, activity, exercise has a has a factor to play. Stress. Mm-hmm. We're living in a very stressful uh, time at the moment. Alcohol. Alcohol, exactly, is another factor. And then there are some factors that you just can't run away from, like genetic factors like BRCA1 or Lynch syndrome. And so those all, if you have that combination of the risk factors, unfortunately, your, your risk of getting breast cancer is higher. So you can reduce a lot of that by making sure, right, I'm going to keep my BMI at a healthy weight, or I'm going to make sure that my weight is maintainable at a certain stage where I feel healthy, I'm exercising, I stop smoking, I reduce my alcohol to 14 units a week. Um, and then I am self-examining. And self-examination, I always say, shouldn't be limited to when you're in your 50s. Mm-hmm. We should be checking our boobs right at from 15, mm-hmm. 16 onwards and yeah. making it a habit. Do you remember there was a campaign like years ago? I remember this campaign sort of getting to know your body. Yeah. And then it's almost got to a stage where it's almost a shame to get you to know your body. But there's something to say to looking in the mirror every day and looking at your body and looking if you can see any changes. And I suppose part of it is being comfortable with our body. I think lots of women in particular, but, you know, guys as well, they look in the mirror and don't like what they see. So they tend not to look at the whole person. That's absolutely true. And you earlier on said, you know, it was a bit shocking that as a Muslim woman, you were you know, self-examining your breast, even with clothes on. It's because... I mean, all you did was what? You raised your arm. Yeah. And then you use like the palms palms of your hand to just feel around... But the thing is, our boobs are hypersexualized. We can't get away with it. We can't run away from that as women. And when your organs are not your own, they're hypersexualized, you almost feel like, well, this is something that I reserve for my partner or my husband or whatever, or they're reserved for my babies for when I breastfeed them. They're not something that I think there is that psychology that plays a role where you think it's not part of you. And so you don't pay attention to it. And yes, there's a huge issue with body image. In my book, I've got women of different sizes, um, different color as well. So there's a lot of women of color. There's an examination of how to do your vulva. And it's a, a, a woman of color. And she's got stretch marks on her thighs. Mm. And when I was going through the editorial process, I was shocked at how many of the my test market of younger women were going, oh, Dr. Arif, she has stretch marks. Mm. Like, can you, is that, can mm. you take those out? And mm. I said, no, that is absolutely normal. Mm. So stretch marks on your boobs, stretch marks on your thighs, on your arms, they are normal. We need to normalize. We have to start embracing that, exactly. right? What did your mum think of the book? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Page three inwards. There is a picture of a black vulva. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud of that because most medical textbooks only default to sort of paler skin or white skin. And so I said, no, no, I really want my women uh, as a woman of color myself to be represented in this. And, um, and it takes up, as you can see, a whole, a whole page really, because to get all the labels put on, we had to go around the picture. And the printers came back to us and said, oh, Dr. Arif, would you want to consider just making it a lighter colour so that we can get the pictures onto the page and not go around the... And then I realised that actually in medical school, that's probably what's happened to all my medical books. You default to a paler skin because it's the cost of printing is cheaper that way. Just imagine getting a raise because of the cost of printing. Yeah. 
But then that means, you know, you can't see it and you can't be it. And that sort of whole analogy. I understand it because I didn't have any symptoms. So they, when they talk about breast cancer, they talk about um, the dimpling of the skin or the nipple leaking. So, I mean, I didn't have any of that. Yeah. And so. And it looks different. It looks different. On darker darker skin. skin. And precisely that. So I said, look, we need to take up space in the book. I don't care. I'm not compromising on it. But my mother, as she opened the book, turned to that page and just went, oh, darling, didn't you have anything better to do? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, but this is precisely why we need to show women. And the same with breast cancer. You know, the, the, the markers that we have, if you Google it, the first thing that comes up is all, you know, sadly still white Caucasian skin. But we know the pure de orange, that dimpling of the skin that you're talking about, actually looks slightly different it might not even appear that's the scary thing for me as a woman of color that if that's one of the signs you're looking for and for some women in my surgery that's the only sign they don't mm. even feel a lump yeah yeah and that's the only sign but if i they've got no reference point to mm. say what it looks like or for example no pictures of what leaky nipple might look like or what does um a change in the skin sort of tones and in black canadian skin the skin the changes in the skin tone might be different because we know our skin doesn't appear red like if i hurt myself it just turns into a darker brown mm, <laughs> rather yeah, than a, a yeah. red mm. which is the redness i'm looking for on mm. a breast mm. picture um and that is what concerns me and this is why representation Absolutely. is so important and for the people that say oh why does it matter and you're always talking about race I mean the fact is that women of color get diagnosed later Mm. and have a higher risk of they die uh twice the rate of white women Mm. and they could be diagnosed early so the reason why I thought it was so important I mean I was shocked when I established that there was like a million missing mammograms And completely flawed to think that there's like 8,000 women plus, depending on, you, it's eight to 12,000 women. Um, and I, I say women, trans men, non-binary, walking around with breast cancer when they don't know it. And the thing is, if you catch it early. The prognosis is so good. So good. So 66% of women sort of survive breast cancer now. But if you catch it early and like I did, your chances just live in a, a normal life. I mean, it's it's literally life changing to catch it early. You said something really cute, actually, and I and I the thought back to what I have in my consulting room. You said people go, "Why do you hark on about this all the time?" And why do you talk about women's health or you know black women in particular? Um, I'm reminded of a text by an author called Colleen Hoover, and she's a, a writer and a poet, and she wrote about women and the trials and tribulations that they go through. And she's, she's written, my grandmother went through it. My mother went through it. I'm going through it. And I'll be damned if my daughter goes through it. And I think that is the reason that you and I Mm. constantly have these conversations and you do what you do because you'll be damned if the next generation does it and it stops with us. We have to be the generation that says enough. We have to be the women of color that says enough. We have to be the women who are putting our heads up above the parapet to say, look, these are the symptoms of breast cancer that I need you to look out for because you could be walking around with breast cancer not knowing it. So the pandemic changed how what you do um, as a GP. The pandemic changed how you do your job. The pandemic changed me because I was diagnosed with um, breast cancer. 
it it was just a crazy when I think back it was a very crazy time I mean you throw the pandemic into you know your health and what happened you throw the fact that the NHS is on its knees it was quite a traumatic journey like so it was a traumatic journey sort of for me and also not wanting to talk about it so I didn't want to talk about it for a number of reasons because I was thinking oh my god I'm a bit of a public figure there's a lot of people who are gonna abuse me no matter what and I'm struggling to but isn't that sad really sad that's really sad because as a woman in a powerful position and so you sort of think but what do other women do who don't have that level of voice Mm. and this is why I think it was like so important I mean I I haven't got the gene I Unlike, I suppose, a lot of people think, oh, I'm never going to get breast cancer. I mean, I've got two friends who went for a screening because of me. One's fine. One had a partial mastectomy last week. And there's people who think, oh, it would never happen to me. I was always kind of hypervigilant because my mum had breast cancer, my sister had breast cancer. And it was that worry all the time. Whenever I go for a screening, oh, my goodness, it might happen to me. But then I got comfortable and I thought, Okay, but because mum and your sister had breast cancer, were you hypervigilant in the examination or just going to screening? I was not self-examining as much as I should, but I looked at my boobs every day in the mirror, and that's why I think there is this thing about loving our bodies. So I looked at my boobs every day. Uh, there were no changes in my boobs at all but when it was time to go for the mammogram I did what you said earlier on I was like oh god I haven't got time for that I've got so much stuff to do eventually I went and yeah to get that news was shocking because you had no symptoms you didn't even feel a lump no no Uh, no no lump in the armpit no changes to the no pain and like you say no changes in size to the breast at all and it was just on the mammogram just on the mammogram and I think this is why I mean, it makes me so happy as a GP, not happy for your diagnosis, I'm so sorry. But it makes me so happy as a doctor because I think, A, you went for the screening. um, And B, this is where screening is so brilliant because it picks it up. And the fact that there's a million mammogram that went missing. Million. There's a million. In the pandemic. How do we get those women? Some women are scared of mammograms. Yeah. Basically, for those people who've not been to one, first time, I mean, basically... You put your boob in between two plates. They squash it one way and then they squash it another way. I think they squash it three ways. I mean, they say it's just screening. It should be called a squashing. It's just, <laughs> just squashing. I don't know. I think squashing might put people off. But <laughs> I'm going to get my boobs you're squashed. You're squashing. But that's literally what it is, right? You're squashing your boobs in like three different ways. Why? Because what we want to do, it's... It's taking a 3D picture of the breast tissue and the breast tissue is full of fat cells. And so what we need to do is try and find the cancer cells, which are going to appear as white cells. Mm -hmm. So women over the age of 50 or 52 is when they're invited. And that's the reason that is, is because the idea is that they have less estrogen or less estrogenized breast tissue. Mm -hmm. And a mammogram, if it's uh, just less estrogenized cells and its fat cells will appear black Mm -hmm. and cancer cells will appear white. So it's really easy to pick it up. Mm -hmm. So that's why we say ductual carcinoma. So that's in situ within the ducts. It's the early, early stages and we can pick it up. However, women who have densest 
breast cells, mm. so highly estrogenized breasts or not in the menopausal phase of their life yet, then they will actually have white cells, white breasts on a mammogram and a white cancer on a white mammogram. You just can't see it. So that's that so density. density. And women of colour tend to have more They dense do. The, the data isn't so brilliant, but the data is showing us that, yes, um, black and Asian women do tend to have denser breasts. That's not to say Caucasian women don't. but Younger and younger, younger women, women yes, of all that's the other colours thing. have yeah. denser breasts. Exactly. Right? And for them, that's why the, the examination is so important. And that's why getting ultrasound scans for mm. them would be the best thing. But that's not a great screening tool mm. because an ultrasound scan will need a highly qualified sonographer, mm. but also then it will take half an hour to do. And we can't can't do that. Whereas a mammogram is a very quick procedure, as you know. So it's those plates that squish your boob. Mm. And the fear that's around that, I'll tell you a quick story. It's mm. quite funny, actually. I hope my mother doesn't mind me telling you this. But my mother, Pakistani woman, Punjabi speaking, doesn't speak much English. She had her first breast cancer screening appointment. She didn't go. And I happened to pop around for something else. And I saw it on the mantelpiece. And I said to my mother, you need to go to your breast screening. And she goes, no, 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 I can't go. Because Mrs. Siddiqui down the road, made up name, but, you know, my neighbor down the road went and she said that they squished her boobs and then they pulled on it. And now she has <laughs> saggy boobs. <laughs> I don't want saggy boobs. <laughs> I said to her, well, that, you're talking to your daughter who's a doctor and that's utterly ridiculous. But when you have a bad experience, women talk. Yeah. You're going to tell each other. And she must have had a bad experience, bless her, over-exaggerated between her group of friends and being Pakistani women anyway. I can say that, being Pakistani. And so when you have a good experience, you have to come back and tell your community that. Tell your group of friends that. Yeah, that's important. That's so important. Yeah. Because when you do that, you're just like reassured and you won't just sit, like you said, I got it, you're busy, you're doing your mm. surgeries, mm. you're going into parliament. Mm. Okay, I'll park it. Mm. And the number, it was important because then the number of women that then went for their screening, which made me feel that sharing my journey was important. You did get all the conspiracy theories as well. Somebody has said that when you go for a biopsy, because it's like a long needle, which they said, don't look, but I did look. Of course you would. That's really, you, don't. Honestly, it was <laughs> you would have very look. scary. Um, but but it didn't. You didn't feel anything. It's a very thin, very fine thin needle. needle. Yeah. And the rumor was that by having a biopsy, you spread the cancer because it's like piercing. And somebody on social media like used a balloon as an example and then pierced the balloon and the water went everywhere and said, "That's what they're doing. They're spreading cancer yeah. in your body by doing that." Well, the pandemic was the worst for that. And it that's why I think health content creators such as myself who are doing this as NHS GPs, we should be on those platforms trying to demystify the myths, etc. Uh, categorically doesn't do that. What you're doing is putting a fine needle in and taking those cells out. Using a balloon full of water is completely different because cancer cells aren't water cells. They're a completely different consistency, for goodness sake. But unfortunately, um, when you've got a very good trending sound, something that's going to go viral and it's, it intrigues individuals, then obviously that will go like wildfire within a community and scare people. And that is something that I think that uh, social media uh, organisers and platforms have a real responsibility to, to tackle that. It's certain circumstances where it exists and grows, if you move it just a, a millimetre, a fraction outside of that circumstance, it doesn't necessarily grow. 
Let's look at what cancer is essentially. Cancer is um, cells which have a similar DNA to your DNA, which are mistakes, and they grow in clumps and they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they turn into a tumor, and then they, a tumor breaks off and then spreads in the bloodstream. I mean, I'm oversimplifying that because, but I, I think for this conversation, it's important to do that. What happens is when you're taking a biopsy, you're just taking a clump of those cells. It doesn't mean you're spreading them anywhere at all. And also, if it is going to spread, it'll be via your bloodstream more than anything. The theories that go around uh, are sometimes comical, but also slightly dangerous and slightly worrying. People think that cancer can be spread spread through air. It doesn't. It's not in droplets. It's mm. not going to be spread through air. They think it can spread through touch. Mm. Culturally, sometimes they say, what did you do wrong oh. to get cancer? Oh, well, that you know, breaks that's... me when they mm. do that. So I, obviously being from a faith group, I hear and see this often that I see women and I've seen it in family friends and dear close friends who've died from breast cancer. So I, I think that we can come to a conclusion that the majority of people have been touched or affected by breast cancer, if not directly, indirectly. And um, some women I find have a fatalistic view that this was God's will and I was going to get it. And I see that in my Muslim community as well. And the other sort of thing is, is you must have done something wrong to be able to get cancer. I think that those sort of narratives are incredibly, incredibly concerning. And this is where faith groups play a huge part, especially with ethnic minority communities where faith is a huge part of their everyday. Um, and we should be able to educate each other about what breast cancer is and have those open, non-stigma, taboo conversations which aren't hypersexualizing our breasts. So um, estrogen plays a huge role in cancer sometimes. It's like oestrogen allows the cancer to develop and grow. And so my cancer was oestrogen fueled. So I'm on tamoxifen to, and but we need oestrogen, right? It's like a lubricant for our bones yeah. and to, to get around and, you know, to that we can walk because without it, we, we just stiff. And yeah. I'm on oestrogen and Oh my, I mean, I'm on a tamoxifen, tamoxifen. which is an oestrogen blocker. It's yeah. an oestrogen blocker. So let me just sort of refine a couple of things that you said. They are mainly because um, we do have a lot of fear around oestrogen when it comes to breast cancer. And that's historically because oestrogen has been really widely misunderstood. Oestrogen is a really important hormone and it is the oestrogen that influences our cells and not just in our breasts. We have lots of oestrogen receptors, mainly in our brain, our boobs. And everyone has oestrogen, right? Yeah, men as well. That's why men can get breast cancer. Um, and we have lots of oestrogen receptors around our womb and our vulva and our vagina as well. So oestrogen is something our immune system uses as an immune modulator. But we know when you get high levels or you get a surge or a change in estrogen levels, then that impacts our boob tissue. And when that boob tissue gets affected, cells can change and that's when mistakes happen. Estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer. I think that that's a, a really uh, confusing statement to say when you're told it's an estrogen positive receptor. It just means that those receptors that are there are estrogen receptors. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like saying to our fat cells, where we produce a lot of our sex hormones, you know, your fat cells are sex hormone receptors. Well, yeah, of course they are. 
But the reason we give estrogen blockers is because we don't want any remnants of a cancer to come back or to regrow because the changes in the cells happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a temporary solution that we give in order to make sure that there is recovery. But I think I am, and me and lots of other doctors are now sort of starting to say to women, please don't fear estrogen. Mm-hmm. And not all estrogens are the same. There are different categories of estrogen that we give. Um, And so when it comes to things like hormone replacement therapy, actually topical vaginal estrogen that we use for vaginal atrophy is very safe to use whilst using tamoxifen. What's vaginal atrophy? atrophy? (gasps) Okay, let me tell you about this. (laughs) It actually is exciting you. I can see it on your face. This is because, again, this is so little known about. So remember I said we have a lot of estrogen receptors around our vulva and our vagina. Well, what happens is, is as we're going through the perimenopausal change, so that means we are having menopausal symptoms, hot flushes, night sweats, irritability, aches and pains, our hair might be thinning, palpitations, the brain fog. But also what happens is that we don't get enough estrogen that goes into our vulva and our vagina. And why is that important? Because it supports the vaginal flora. We are born and we will die with lots of bugs. We have E. coli in our back passage. Uh, we, we will get, have it all the time. Uh, we have proteases, bacterial vaginosis. We have thrush, a whole four loads of vulval flora. And that our immune system is able to cope with. But what happens is, is that the brain goes, okay, I just need enough estrogen from the fat cells. And so sends a signal to the fat cells and says, please, can you make some estrogen? Because now she's transitioning. Mm -hmm. And then thinks, right, she doesn't need enough down there. I'm oversimplifying, but you don't get enough that is sent to the vulva and the vaginal tissue, which means you get vaginal dryness or an overproduction of vaginal um, secretions. Mm -hmm. You can get irritation, an itch that just doesn't go away and it's not thrush. Having sex is really painful. Having a smear can be really painful as well. And what happens is as you lose the estrogen, the cells shrink. And when you get shrinkage, we say that's atrophy. And you get loss of your clitoral head as well and the clitoral hood and shrinkage as well. But most importantly, you get horrible side effects such as recurrent urinary tract infections. So you lose that mechanism of protection from the back passage around the perineum. So imagine if you've had a baby and you had an episiotomy or um, you've got um, scar tissue down there, or you've got vulval lichen sclerosis, which in my book, I've got a picture of what it looks like on color, on dark skin, on colored skin. So imagine if you've got that and you're going through this transition mm. and we're denying you vaginal estrogen. Well, that it's ludicrous. We need to replace that back. So, so estrogen isn't all isn't all, all bad. bad. Exactly, yeah. because topical vaginal estrogen, the structure mm. of it is is it doesn't go into the bloodstream. Mm. The one that we fear a lot is systemic. So that means the one that's going to go throughout your whole bloodstream. Mm. So yes, for you, Dawn, as you are on tamoxifen, mm. um, you might choose never to go on systemic HRT. And that's absolutely fine to manage your menopausal symptoms. And that can be done in conjunction with a menopause specialist mm-hmm. and a oncologist. But a lot of my oncology colleagues now who do breast cancer are really driving the change and saying topical vaginal estrogen is safe for women who have had tamoxifen. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so Great. something that most Great. women don't know about. Yeah, that's interesting. So tell me like most recently, something on social media that made you smile or you thought that's a good thing. That's a, that's a good way of getting a message across. So one of the things that I saw recently, which actually blew my mind a lot, 
was the fact that when it comes to women's health, um, the technology is still so lacking and so behind. So breast cancer screening, we still have a mammogram. In fact, we know that it doesn't pick up all breast cancers. And if you have dental breasts, it it doesn't always pick it up either. Um, There was a really good uh, video actually that I saw someone comparing uh, the fact that the iPhone that we've got has gone through so many different stages. Every six months we've got an iPhone. But when it comes to our women's health and contraception, we still got microgynon, which is around for like 50 years. Yes. That is still not changed. That is true. And I'm still prescribing microgynon. Oh really? And it's just still coming in a green Yes, they do. Wow. So you know. Yeah. And I was just thinking, actually, that is so true that when it comes to women, in Mm. fact, the the technology hasn't moved on. The way that we still use like forceps to clutch a baby's head, et cetera, and, and, you know, for birth, that hasn't changed. Because it is women, because I kind of think if it was men, so if men went through the menopause or had babies there will be so much investment in, you know, how to make it better and more comfortable. Because women used to like give birth squatting, you know, yeah. but then it was seemed to be undignified. Yeah. You know, so lie down on the table and give birth, you know, make it harder. I just think it's crazy. I hate having a conversation, a feministic conversation, because as a mother of three boys, mm. I can't, I feel like I'm demonizing men when I say <laughs> that. And I'm looking at my sons going, no babies, you're fine. <laughs> it's not you. But you will teach them and you will teach them about. But I do think that if there were certain things that are happening to men, then definitely. But let's look at the trajectory of men. They're hunter gatherers. They've always been the ones to go and get the food and come back and then the family would thrive. And actually at all the CEO levels at the top companies throughout the biggest top companies you can think of, they're still men, unfortunately. And when men drive a lot of the conversations, Mm -hmm. then everything else is secondary because that's not their lived-in experience. Mm -hmm. But women who do have that lived-in experience and that understanding, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, never make and break through the ceiling. And that's why I think I got really passionate about breast cancer health and menopause care particularly, because if women, it's estimated that you know, a million women will leave the workplace if we're not on top of menopausal care. And for me, I think, well, we haven't broken through the ceiling because you get to that CEO level and then the brain fog sets in and you're still then pushed to the back of the line. That happens when you are probably the best and overqualified person in the company and you fall pregnant and you pushed back of the line and the person who was three years your you know, junior ends up being promoted. I definitely have seen that happen to Patriarchy. me. Patriarchy. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but also... Yeah. Also, I think this is where we as women also need to be able to understand how much the patriarchy has a hold on us and how much internalized misogyny has a hold on us as well. Women saying to women, well, why are you bothering to make a noise? Why, Dawn, why are you talking about your breast cancer? I had it. It wasn't so bad. Well, I got over it. Shut up now. Do you know? And, and I think it's like that constant feeding of within women going, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Don't talk. Don't be loud. Don't take up space. You know, and we were saying how important it is to be loud. And I think that we also need to get to a point where we are unapologetically who we are. So be unapologetically black. With that kind of mentality and that drive and with your book as well, which, you know, has women of colour in there, which most medical books don't. I know. I mean, we turned to that page, both of us, didn't yeah. we? And I said, look what I've got. Yeah. 
honestly. Because it's as like we, being on TV when you see, when you used to see a black person for the first time on an advert, and then we all got excited and phoned each other. I know. But, and imagine like me wearing a hijab, and I so I still I still get lovely messages. Um, and there's always going to be some trolling. People who are like, oh, you know, what, you know, are you a token person or whatever? And I think that we need to sort of strike a balance where there is enough of us putting our head above the parapet, but and enough of us making and enough of us just being unapologetically ourselves working together and building and this is what I hope you know with the podcast I hope that people will kind of listen you know understand share it buy your book buy my book yeah look at this you know and then and then we build but also women share that's why I love women's health and I love like my women in my community as well because guaranteed if I say something to them anything it could be just for example think about the coil as HRT, that bit of nugget, they'll take back and sprinkle it around to everybody in their community, anyone that will listen. You know what Dr. Nagat said? (laughs) She talked about vaginal dryness. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. The pandemic, crazy time, very isolating, also very lonely because because of COVID, we weren't allowed to go anywhere with anyone. So I had to go to lots of appointments on my own. And in my book, A Purposeful Life, I talk about that a little bit. But tell me, for people who are wanting to find out more, where would you recommend they go? It's always different for different patients. Family support networks are so vital. And I think that's what you're touching upon there in the pandemic. You had to make those appointments yourself. And I'm so grateful now that we're not in that situation. So firstly, I would say, please talk to your nearest and dearest. Mm -hmm. There's lots of support with your GP as well. They can provide you because all the letters will be coming back to them and they can talk you through any information that you might need further on. And the charities that are out there, I always use um, Breast Cancer Now. Uh, They have an amazing support. Uh, Macmillan nurses also provide so much support as well. But if you want just uh, not related to breast cancer, but you're thinking, I just need mental health support, then actually you don't need to go to your GP at all. You can self-refer onto the psychological therapies. Um, So if you Google your, um, they're called IAPT services, Mm -hmm. I-A-P-T, and put in your postcode and then a self-referral form comes up for talking therapies. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes all you need is someone who's removed from your circle of friends, yeah. removed from your family. Because I get a lot of people who say, I don't want to burden my partner with yeah. this. I don't want to burden my mother with this. And I want to talk to someone outside of it. Well, we do have talking therapies on the NHS. Yes. Yeah, I talk about that a lot in the book, actually, in terms of leaving voice notes and things. Yeah. We're going to have some of those people on future shows like Breast Cancer Now, um, Maggie's, Macmillan. So we're going to have them on the show, which is great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was an amazing conversation with an amazing woman, Dr. Nigat. And it's such a pleasure to share this platform with her and her knowledge. Sometimes I think when you see people on TV, you almost forget how much they've been through and their knowledge and so it was really a pleasure to share that and there's lots of things that came up in that conversation that we will cover over the next few episodes of Mammogram and Me so thank you all so much for listening to Mammograms and Me the podcast hosted by me Dawn Butler with metro.co.uk please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple and don't forget to sign up for hashtag find the million tell five friends about this podcast 
and keep listening. Every week we will have a new episode. Keep sharing the information that you learned today. Let me know if there's anything else that you want me to cover. This podcast was produced by Pineapple Audio Production. Thanks again for listening and see you again next week.